coming up next week uh, that are due. That'll be the third homework uh, due a week from today. So that covers the chapters uh, 17 through 19 that we finished, 20 through 21 that we're working on today and finishing, and then 22 that we're going to do next week. We'll get through that on Mon we should get through that on Tuesday. So that will cover those, and that's kind of preparation for the third exam, which is coming up the week after that, which will be November the 8th. And that will cover a number of chapters, it co but it covers just three units like each of the others. But chapters 17 through 19 are one unit. I've put them all together. So when you're printing out the key point sheets, you get to print out, you can print out all of them and use them. But when you're looking at the questions, there'll be 10 questions from each unit. So don't overstudy chapter 17 versus chapter 22. You're going to get 10 questions on chapter 22. You're going to get five from chapter each of 20 and 21, and you're going to get like three or four from 17 through 19. So focus how you're studying based on those. Those are considered one unit. Yeah? The quizzes that you give us, mm -hmm. that be 17 through 19? Yes. Yeah, the quizzes are set up the same way. So the quiz is 17 through 19. So it's going to be a similar style to what you'll see on the exam. So when you look at it, you don't have a quiz for 17, a quiz for 18, and a quiz for 19. You have one quiz that covers those three chapters. Okay. But I just want you, when you're focusing, I consider that one unit of the class. That was one week's worth of material. So when you're studying for them, don't overstudy thinking 17 through 19 is half the chapters, therefore half the test. It's only going to be a third of the test. So it still needs to be covered, but it's going to be 22 is going to be the more important chapter for these because that is one chapter, but is a third of your test. So I just want to make sure you're focusing on that. The review quizzes, which are all now up and available, if you try them, let me know if there's any issues. If it's not letting you take them multiple times, if I missed a setting on it or something, if it's not giving you the answers, I thought I checked all three of them carefully, but things happen. So. If you take them earlier, take a, look, take a look at those. And those are available, and again, you get extra credit on those, so make sure you do them. And they're due by 8.30 the day of the exam, so you can take them right up to the exam as many times as you want uh, to practice. So that would be the following week. In between, I'm looking for the solar observations for the third time. That's the last time I'll look at them. And then a couple weeks later, after we get through the exam, We'll be going through having one day of lab that goes through the entire project, everything that we need for the remainder of the project. As we are getting close to the end of the class now, and yes, there's other stuff in between there, but I did want to put a note up for the final exam. Since I just got that information uh, from the campus, our final exam, our class doesn't fit the normal schedule, I guess, for whatever reason. So it's actually, it is on Tuesday, which is good. I've, every once in a while they try to schedule a Tuesday, Thursday class on a Wednesday, which doesn't work out very well. Uh, but Tuesday, December 11th, pretty much at the normal class time. So instead of being an 8 to 10 exam, it's an 8.30 to 10.30 exam. So. Just so you know, that's what they've officially scheduled. But if you look for it, if you look for us on the actual final exam schedule that they tell you which class dates, our time doesn't fit in. So our exam time apparently doesn't fit in. But that's what they sent me as our official exam time for the, for the final. So we've got one of the first days of the final there, which will be nice because we'll have just met the Thursday before that. So I won't keep putting that up till we get a little bit closer, but I just wanted to let you that you remind so you can sort of plan as to when to expect our final exam as you're looking at that for ours, mine, and other classes. All right, questions.
right, well, let's take a look at our picture for today, uh, which is actually more of a uh, last time picture would have been nice too, because it really would have tied in with what we were doing there. But this is a uh, dark nebula. This is Barnard 150. Uh, Barnard, named after an astronomer who studied almost 200 of these dark nebulae, darker patches on the sky, uh, hundreds of years ago. And he cataloged all them. It was his catalog, so it got his name, and then each one of them that he found was numbered. And this happens to be 150, which is the seahorse. If you can kind of make out a little seahorse, perhaps, with the head and mouth sticking up there, and then the tails going, tail going down, perhaps. But it's an example of a dark nebula or a star forming region. And last time I talked and told you a little bit about how stars form in terms of from a dark dust, dust and gas cloud, from that dust and gas in the interstellar medium. So this is an example of one of those. And what's going on in this right now is it is forming stars. Those darker, denser areas here where you don't see any stars are the concentrations of dust and gas. That's where stars are forming right now. Could we come back in a couple million years, we would see this, most of this would be gone and we'd have new stars that have formed in that region. So we would actually have new stars forming in that section. And that's what's going on right now. If we looked at this instead of visible light with infrared, we'd actually be able to see a lot of glowing. You'd be able to see a lot of those pro, what we call protostars forming within this region. So the dust actually is blocking out the light when it gets concentrated enough. And we talked a little bit about that last time and what the dust in the interstellar medium does. And you don't see it well on here when it's projected because I've got a little bit too much light in the room. But if you take a look at this on your phone or your computer, if you take a look at the image, if you look right around the edges of the dust, you'll see a number of stars that look really red. And that is because their light is coming through all that dust. And remember last time we talked about reddening in the interstellar medium. So what the dust does is it makes things look fainter, blocks out some of the light, but it also makes them look redder. So if you get a chance later on today, you know, pull it up on a computer or something where you can look at it in more detail, and you can actually see that right around the edges there are a whole bunch of red stars which may be red, may not really be red, but appear red because we're looking at them through all of the dust. All right, questions? All righty. Well, we will go ahead and get started. We were looking, just looking at dust. We're going to continue looking at dust. We'd gone through how stars form in the form last time. And the last part of chapter 21 that I want to try to finish up today talks actually about planets forming. So planets forming and what kind of planets we've been able to detect now around other stars. Now this is a relatively new part of astronomy. Exoplanets, you keep hearing about their discoveries now, but not horribly long ago. 25, 30 years ago, there were none. We knew, of, we knew of nine planets at the time. Back then, Pluto was considered a planet, so there were nine planets. Mercury out through Pluto, and that was it in the universe that we knew of. It wasn't until the 1990s that we detected the first planets outside our solar system. So this is a relatively new portion of astronomy. 
that we've been able to discover. Now some of the things we knew about before, this is actually detecting planets. We did not detect the first planet for a while. But we knew of, we were, we were suspicious. Even back when I was an undergraduate, even before that, you know, we were suspicious of some of these things. We'd look at things like these dusty disks around stars and say, boy, it sure looks like planets are forming there. But we did not have any detections, anything that confirmed that other planets existed outside of our solar system until 25-ish years ago. But we did see things like this. So this is looking into one of those dust clouds in the infrared. And we could see, you'd look at one of those dusty areas, you'd see some compact areas. And they'd have little disks around them. And you'd suspect that those were regions where we're seeing stars forming. And we're seeing that planetary system form around it at the same time. So star is forming at the center there. And around it, there's a disk of material that is going to eventually form, up, form planets. The nice thing about these disks is that they're so much easier to detect. They're big. Right? Planetary systems, you're looking for individual planets. They're little, tiny. They're hard to find. And we're going to look at how we do that now. But they're tough to find. A planetary, the disks around them could be several times the size of our solar system. So they're a lot bigger. They're a lot easier to find. They're emitting a lot of infrared radiation, not just from one planet here, but from this whole dusty disk around it. So they're much easier to be able to detect. But they're not we can't confirm, in most cases, that there's actually planets there. The one thing that it does lead us to believe, and there were some thoughts as to different ways that planetary systems formed long ago. But we think now it is a natural part of star formation. When a star forms, leaves some material behind, that eventually condenses into the planets. So that means that if it's a natural part, that planetary systems should be common in the universe. There are other thoughts previously that you know, maybe it was something rarer, some kind of interactions that were causing the planets to form. We no longer think that. We think that planetary systems are going to be very common and that we're going to find lots and lots of them. And that's what we'll be looking at over the course of today's lecture portion, is looking at you know, how we go about detecting those. So once they start to form, how long does it take to form a planetary system? These are uh, not actually, these are actual images here. Well, the top ones are actual images of these. Uh, examples as to what we look at for star for for planetary formation. How long does it take to form the system of planets around a star? Well, when we look at young protostars, very young ones, only a couple million years old, that disk, the disks that we see around them, extend all the way into the star. So they go almost all the way to the star so that the planets could form. Very quickly, and again, very quickly in astronomical terms, 10 million years, when we look at older protostars, the inner regions have been cleaned out. So it only took 10 million years of the star's life to wipe out all the dust there. It all got converted to planets, and what didn't get converted to planets got pushed out, and it's done. So planetary form, formation formed within 10 million years. Boy, that's forever. Right? 10 million years is such a long time. But our sun is now four and a half billion years old. That's about two-tenths of a percent of its life. So it formed it very, very quickly by comparison. 
I think I did a quick calculation just to see what that does for you know, a human lifespan. That's like you know, something that forms you, with, for you, for a human life within about the first month or two of your life after being born. So that, that's really quick. It's done, informed, and everything's done the first couple months of your life, and then everything else stays the same afterwards. That's how quick the planet's formed. So even though 10 million years seems long to us, in terms of how after, how long it takes afterwards, uh, how long this thing lives, it's a very short portion of that. So the planets have to form right at the beginning, right as the star is forming, and then they're done. Then there is no, there is no planetary formation. So the planetary planets can't you know, leisurely form over a billion years or a quarter of a, plan, of a star's life. They form very, very quickly at the beginning. So by the time you've cleaned out that, as you still have a protostar there, and you're just cleaning out the nebula, you've already formed your planets. The planets are already there. So it's a very quick portion. And that's kind of what we're, some of the images here are trying to show is that you have those disks going really far in. You've got to watch out because the star, there's actually a circular disk here blocking out the star. But we'd see the disk going very far in. All that dust goes right into the star early on. Afterwards, there's a gap in it. There's still some dust further out as it's being pushed out. But if it's out way beyond the size of, say, our solar system, then you're probably not forming any more planets like ours. It's all pushed out to the outer portions. So when we look at some of these up close, if we look at some of these disks of debris, the planets actually start to concentrate the material. So we can actually look at some of these. This is taken in the infrared portion of the spectrum. So the protostar is down there at the center, still forming. But clumps of material begin to form. The material starts to clump up. So you get gaps where there's very little material. Kind of looks, uh, looks like almost a planetary ring system around a planet where you have gaps in between some of the areas. So you have concentrations of material here. And you have areas where there are very few, very little bits of material. This is an example. This is actually looking at one of these. So that's not an artist's conception. This is actually a star called HL Tauri. Another one of those variable star naming conventions that I mentioned uh, previously. But it is an example of a variable star, a very young star. But we're seeing some of these gaps start to form in there and some of these concentrations of material which will slowly, over just a few million years, form into planets. So this is an example of one of those planetary systems in the process of formation. So we see evidence of this, but we still have, this is still, none of this is evidence for that planets actually exist. It sure is good circumstantial evidence that there should be planets out there because we're seeing these disks, we're seeing what looks like the formation. But is it that or is it something else that we don't completely understand? So what we really want to do, what we really want to find is actually evidence that another planet exists out there. You know, we know of the eight in our solar system. Is there something else out there beyond our solar system? Answer is yes, and we've actually detected many of them. But how do we go about that? And I'm going to give you a bunch of, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of them on the next page. These are methods that have been used to find planets outside our solar system. And then I'm going to go into a little more detail on a few of these. But uh, some of these involve what we call astrometric. Astrometric is just using 
the gravity of the planet. The gravity of the planet tugs on the star and makes it move a little bit. Jupiter plugs, tugs on the sun. So sun sometimes gets pulled a little bit one way by Jupiter when Jupiter's in one part of its orbit. On the other side, it's tugged a little bit the other way. Very small amounts, but measurable if the star is close enough. So you can actually see a star seem to wobble around the sky based on planets around it. And then you can use that motion, work backwards, and figure out what the planets must be to produce the observed motions. Even easier is what we call the radial velocity method, looking at the Doppler shift. When planets orbit the star, it's really not the planet orbiting the star. They orbit each other. Planet's got a really big orbit. Sun is a little tiny orbit. But it has that same orbit. So sometimes that star is moving towards us. Sometimes it's moving away. And that means that it's going to have a red shift when it's coming away from you, a blue shift when it's coming towards you. We can measure that change. And that is one of those methods. The nice thing with that one, astrometric has to be close to you because you're looking for actual motions of the star. If that star is further away, those apparent motions get smaller and smaller and smaller and harder to detect. Radial velocities don't depend on that. If it's coming towards you, as long as you can see the star, you can measure those shifts. Uh, the other one that's a big, big part of this is the transit method. Transits actually look for eclipses when a planet passes in front of a star. So you pa a planet passes in front of the star, dims out its light, and makes it look a tiny bit fainter than it otherwise would be. We've actually detected thousands of planets by this method now, looking for eclipses. So those are two of the primary ones. In fact, the vast majority of the planets that have been detected so far are through those two methods. Direct imaging, that's tough. We can actually see the planet. Not see a nice, beautiful view of the planet, but actually see the light that it's emitting. It can be done, but only when the planet is really close to us. You've got to be really close. It's got to be only the nearest ones that we can actually get any direct images. And it's not going to be anything like images of things in the solar system that we can get. But it's going to be you know, just we're going to be able to see that there is a point of light there. Uh, a couple other rarer ones, uh, gravitational microlensing is actually using gravity when a planet passes in front of a distant star. It'll make that distant star flare brighter for a second, for an instant. And we can use that to determine the planet, to determine something about the planet. It's again, it's a rare case and it's just random luck that the planet happens to pass exactly in front of a star. But if it does happen, we can make some measurements there. And there have been a number of planets that have been detected through this method. And then finally, uh, another very rare one, but I put it up specifically because it was actually the first detection, is through what we call pulsar timing. Now, we won't get to pulsars till after the exam, but as a quick uh, note on them, pulsars are very compact remnants of, remnants of an exploded star. So at the end of a star's life, they're what's left over. They spin really fast. They're more accurate than anything we have here on Earth in terms of clocks. So extremely precise. So if they pulse, they pulse you know, with tiny fraction of a percent accuracy. So we, can, we use them and their timing to be able to make the first detection of planets. What did I say it was? 1995. We actually had the first detection of planets around, not a regular star, but around a pulsar. So again, we're going to talk more about pulsars, but I wanted to mention that one since that is 
when the first planets were detected outside of our solar system. So let's look a little bit at some of these methods. And again, I'm not going to go through all of those in detail, but I want to talk about a couple of them. Um, Astrometric method means that the stars are going to wobble. So this is actually, this circle here is the sun. The dots and the little lines here are all the positions of the sun that it would have going back to, when does this start, 1940s? Back to the 1940s and heading out into around 2000. So where the positioning of the sun would be over that. So if you were just looking at the sun from a distant, uh, another solar system, you would see the sun here, and then a few years later it would be here, and then here, and you'd watch it move around the sky. Now, it's a tiny amount. It's, there's the sun itself in terms of size, and it's moving you know, a couple times its own diameter. Sometimes instead of being right here, it's way off over here. It's not a regular pattern. Well, it is, but it's not because of we don't have one planet. If we had one planet, it would be a nice, simple little curve that we'd see. If, we just had, if Jupiter was the only planet around the sun, we'd see nice, constant changes. But we've got, we've got eight planets tugging on the sun. Sometimes they add up together, right? If they're all on the same side, pulling the same way, then the sun is moved off significantly. If you get Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune and all the planets pulling it one way, it gets pulled off significantly from where it would be. Sometimes you get Jupiter on one side and Saturn and you, and you get them all balanced. So there's essentially no change and the sun is back very close to where it's supposed to be. So one observation isn't going to tell you anything. But you can move, as the smaller, as the bodies move, they will actually, you can take this information. So if some distant astronomer could measure accurately these motions over the course of decades, they could put it into a computer, work backwards and say, okay, what, how many planets have to be there? How big do they have to be? Where do they have to be to reproduce the observations that we see? So this works in a few cases when we have stars that are close enough that we can actually see them wobbling around a little bit. Again, the more planets you get, the more complicated it gets because they can either add up together, they can cancel each other out. If Jupiter and Saturn are on opposite sides of the sun, those are the two biggest, you know, they're going to balance out a little balance out pretty well. So you're not going to see any big uh, changes at those times. Other times back here, where is it, 1950s, 1990s looks like, it was quite a bit off when planets were lined up a little bit more. So the difficulty with this and why it's not used more is that it only works for nearby. We're talking about things that are one one hundredth of an arc second if we're looking at Alpha Centauri, the nearest star, and we're looking for a Jupiter-sized planet. Now that's measurable. We went through the parallax measurements. Right? That's not something that's unmeasurable, but that's for the nearest star and a big planet. So this works if you have a big planet and a nearby star, but it doesn't work if you're looking at stars that are hundreds or thousands of light years away. That amount of the shift gets so tiny that we can't measure it accurately enough. So. It really depends on the distance. If you've got a, something that's close, you can use this. If you've got something for really far away, it doesn't work as well. What does work better is the radial velocity method. And that's shown here. 
that you have, there's a planet moving around the star, and, but the star is also moving in a much smaller orbit. So because that star is orbiting, planet goes around, star has to move as well, sometimes that star is coming towards us, the light is blue shifted. Sometimes that star is going away from us, the light is red shifted. We can't see the planet directly. Planet's still far too faint, but we can measure the brightness of the star. And we can measure the velocity of the star, and we can see blue shift and we can see red shift. And then we can use that to determine, kind of like the astrometric method, we can use that to determine what the planets must be around it. So we look at the red shift, we look at the blue shift. There will be uh, a periodic change based in this. Now again, it will be very simple if there's one planet. So if you have one planet, you might see something like this. You might see the velocity, and the velocity will go down and will go up and will go down and will go up. Over the course of, in this case, what, four, four, four or five years. You can see a very regular change. So this is the velocity of the star, and all that means is when we see something like this, is that there's a planet, probably one big planet, pulling on it that's causing most of the changes. Any other planets might be very, if there are other planets, would be very, very small. So it's very simple. Now if we did something with multiple planets, this would get more and more complicated. If you had several big planets, they'd either add together and you might get some real big changes and you might get sometimes it didn't go down, you'd get a very much more irregular pattern. But you can still take that variation, put it through a computer and say, okay, let's try two planets, let's try three planets, let's play with these masses. And you can adjust those numbers, how many planets, how massive they are, where they are around the star, you can put all that together and then work back, keep working until you get the variations that you see. This would be very simple. So very, you can pretty much figure out just from this what the mass of the planet would be and how big the planet had to be and where it had to be because it's a simple curve. In reality it gets a lot more complicated. The more orbits you see, the more times you see this, the better you can get. As you can see, all the measurements don't fit perfectly. That could mean that there's maybe some other small planets in there causing these little deviations. So more measurements, more variations might help us to find a second planet there or a third planet there. Or they might just be simply errors and me typical measurement errors that would again get washed out as we got more and more measurements. So there could be a couple different cases that would work in this. The good thing is this doesn't depend on distance. In that, as long as you can see the star and get its spectrum, you can measure it. As long as the star is giving you enough light to be able to see that spectrum, you're great. You can then make measurements and determine if it has a, has a star. The amount of this shift depends on the velocity, how fast that star is coming towards us or away from us. Doesn't matter whether it is 10 light years away or 100 light years or 1,000 light years away. The shift, the, the velocity is still the same. The, the, uh, the apparent shifts will be a lot smaller, but the velocity will still be the same. So even if this, as long as I can see that star, I can make this measurement. So that's great because we're not limited to just looking at those nearby stars. The other good thing is that we can estimate the mass of the planet. The more mass of the planet, Jupiter, 
say, tugs on our sun more. So because of Jupiter's gravity, makes the sun move a little faster than, say, the Earth's gravity. Earth doesn't have as much mass. Even though it's closer, it's still going to push a less of a force on the sun. So the motion will actually be less. If you had a smaller planet, these velocities would be a lot smaller and get harder to measure. Bigger planets are going to give you very large velocities and make them a lot easier to measure. The amount of that, the amount of the velocity, can actually allow you to go through a calculation to figure out the mass of the planet. So even though we can't see the planet at all, we can figure out how massive it is. How much material is there in it. So that's one of the very common methods used. The other one that's used a lot is the transit method. Transit method works like this. So in this case, the planet is orbiting around the star. And this only works if that system is tilted almost precisely edge on to us. If it's tilted even a couple degrees, then you tilt this a little tiny bit more and the planet goes down below the star or comes up above the star in the back, we don't see an eclipse. We'll never see any variations in brightness. However, when they're tilted exactly edge on, the planet will pass in front of the star and will make its light dim a tiny bit. Because we're blocking out the star's light, which is bright, with the planet's light, which is very little. So when we do that, we will end up seeing something like this. So we will be able to see this is going down here, drips down, bottoms out, and then comes back up. So we'd measure the brightness of the star, and we could see that change over time. This dip here is similar to what we see here exactly as it comes in. It's blocking it out. That can be a tiny fraction of a percent. It's not necessarily a big change. Remember, we got this big bright star giving off lots of light. Little tiny planet blocking a tiny portion of its light, but it will make it look a little bit fainter. And to the point where it is measurable. Just like we can measure those very tiny angles, we can measure the brightness dips. And once again, it doesn't depend on the distance. As long as we can see the star. If, we can't, if it's so far away we can't see the star, okay, it doesn't work. But as long as the star is visible, we can see its light, we can measure if its brightness changes. And the amount of the brightness change doesn't depend on the distance. So the amount by which it changes doesn't matter whether it is, again, 5 light years away, 50 light years, 500 light years away. The amount of brightness change is still going to be exactly the same. So like the radial velocity, this works regardless of how far you are away from it. So we can do what we can see is that we look at what we call a light curve. And this is the example down here. As the planet starts to pass in front, you'll notice that the light curve doesn't just drop immediately. You can actually use this to determine some of the other parameters. These are great ones because we can determine not only the mass of the planet, which we can do from the orbit, but we can also determine how big the planet is. So you hear about these planets that we've discovered. We can't see any of them, but this planet is twice the size of the Earth, or half the size of the Earth, or the Earth's size, or maybe it's Jupiter's size. How can we measure those? Well, the bigger the planet, the longer it's going to take to get it from just touching the star to being fully in front of the star. If it's a little tiny planet, little tiny speck, 
It's going to do that almost instantaneously. And that would mean that this curve would drop down straight down. It would go from being seeing both the star and the planet together to all of a sudden seeing the, star, the planet blocking out some of the star's light. So the longer this takes to go down, that allows us, the, how big that dip is, how angled that is, the bigger the planet, the longer that angles. So we can use that then to measure how big the planet is. Is it an Earth-sized planet? It's going to go down pretty fast. Is it a Jupiter-sized planet? Much bigger. It's going to go down a little bit slower. So we can use that to really determine the diameters. We can figure out the orbital period. How often does the eclipse occur? If it occurs every week, then that planet takes one week to orbit around its star. If it takes one year, then it's a planet like the Earth. It takes one year to orbit around its star. So we can figure out things like the masses, like the diameters, the orbital periods. We can figure out all these properties that you see about these planets are things that we can infer from either their radial velocities, looking at curves like this, or looking at things like this in terms of the transits. And looking at how fast that goes down and dims out, and then how fast it comes back up again. So we can look at, again, the orbital periods, the planetary size, the masses, and even, in rare cases, the atmosphere. Because we can see the spectrum of the star, right? If we're seeing the brightness of the star, we can split that light into a spectrum. We know what the star spectrum looks like when the planet's not eclipsing it. If it changes when the planet's in front of it, telling us that planet has an atmosphere that the light has to go through, we might be getting faint lines of those materials that make up the atmosphere. So if it had an atmosphere that contained hydrogen, we would see extra hydrogen lines forming in the, in the spectrum of that star. If it had oxygen, we would see oxygen lines. Nitrogen, we would see nitrogen. Carbon dioxide, we'd see evidence of carbon dioxide. So it really just depends on what it's made up of. But when it's here in front of the star, that starlight goes through that. It has to go through the atmosphere of the planet and allows us to be able to determine perhaps something about the atmosphere of the planet. Something you can't get from any of the other methods. But it would be important, you know, if we're ever looking for a habitable planet out there, you know, or signs of life, one of the biggest things we'd look for would be a signature of oxygen. That the only place we see oxygen is on the Earth. We see oxygen all over the place. We see oxygen in carbon dioxide, oxygen in water. But free oxygen doesn't exist anyplace else. There's oxygen on Mars. It's all tied up in rocks. There's oxygen in some of the outer solar system, all tied up in ice. But it's tied up with, uh, with um, hydrogen in, in terms of water ice. The only place we actually get free oxygen is here on Earth, and that's because of life. So if we could detect one of these planets that had a spectrum of oxygen in its atmosphere, wouldn't prove it had life, or certainly wouldn't prove it had intelligent life, but it would be one of those big signs, one of that big piece of circumstantial evidence that we'd love to see. Yeah? Um, for the timing of like, discovering these planets, I know like, on Twitter sometimes they'll pop up when mm -hmm. they find a planet. Yeah. Is that just, those are the more mentionable ones, or are those, like, it's so infrequent that we find new planets? They, they find them all the time, so it's usually it's something big that they've found, so something unusual that they found. But yeah, you will see them pop up that there's you know, a new planetary discovery. I mean, we're up to, uh, there is actually an app called Exoplanet that will actually update them all. I just updated it for my other class. Let me just see. Nope, no new, no new updates on it. So 
3,663 confirmed exoplanets as of now. So that's how many we know. That's, that's not counting the one. That's not counting the eight in our solar system. That's outside our solar system. So yeah, you will hear from new ones, but usually it's a habitable planet, which I'll talk about in a little bit, what that means, or it's something Earth-like, or it's some unusual system where it's got four or five, six planets. Usually it's something unusual. They don't necessarily you know, tweet out every single one that's discovered. And those are the ones that have actually been confirmed. There's also another couple thousand candidates that have not been fully confirmed yet. So those aren't ones that we just think are planets. Those are ones that we have, you know, 99.9% confidence that these are actual planets that have been discovered. All right. So how the transit method works, it's actually this uh, um, satellite out in space that's used. It's the Kepler satellite. You might recognize the name, right? Kep maybe not Kepler, but hopefully you recognize Kepler from a while back as one of the early astronomers who gave us um, the three laws of planetary motion. Well, this was launched in 2009, and it's studying a small group of stars. It's not studying everything in the galaxy. Wouldn't work to be able to do that. It's only studying 150,000 stars. We've got billions of stars in the galaxy. So 150,000 is, again, a tiny fraction of them. It's just looking at one portion of the sky, because you don't want to jump around and look at this star, and then you've got to go over to this star, and then you've got to go over that. You don't want it flipping around all over the place. It just concentrates in one portion of the sky. So looking at that, just thinking of that, with 150,000 stars, it's found 2,000 planets. Of those 3,600, more than 2,000 came from this satellite alone. So you know, two-thirds of the planets that we know of this satellite has been responsible, and there's another couple thousand that still need more study. They might just not be, the dips may be you know, vague enough that we, I showed you dip things like this, but what if that dip only goes down to right here? It's really hard to get that. You've got to see more and more. This one you're quite happy with, with one or two dips. Hey, there's something there. When it's a lot less, you need to see more and more observations to convince yourself that this is actually what is happening. So two-thirds, pretty much two-thirds of the known planets outside our solar system have been detected by uh, the Kepler Observatory. And as I said, we're at 3,600 right now and rising. I mean, you'll see more that will be detected. But again, usually the ones that they'll announce are the big, some, some big discovery where something really interesting was found. You know, an Earth-like planet, an Earth-like planet with the right temperature for water, those are the ones that you know, really draw people's attention. Some just random, you know, Jupiter-sized planet is not as big of a draw as some of the others. So transit method, really a big one. That's how a lot of these planets have been found. Most of the rest were found using the radial velocity, looking at the velocity shifts. The handful of others were found through astrometric and some of the other methods that I want to just mention very briefly as to how they work. So these are much rarer. In this case, we can have direct imaging where we can see the planet. You don't actually get to see it. But again, it's just a dot of light. So there's your star. Star is invisible because we block out or subtract out its brightness. If it were there, it would overwhelm all of this and you wouldn't see the planets. But when you know how bright the star is, you can do some computer algorithms and subtract out the brightness of the star. And then you can actually observe planets directly. So in this case, one, two, three planets a fainter one there and a couple of brighter ones, planet C looks to be the brightest, that you can actually see. Now that's all you see of them. You're not going to be able to see what they look like. You're not going to be able to see their surfaces. 
you probably are not going to be able to determine a lot about them. How big they are, or how, maybe how massive they are if you can figure out something about the orbits. But you don't learn as much, you can't learn as much about them, but it is, it's a chance to actually see them. There are a few cases where they're close enough that we can actually directly image those planets. But those are the rare ones, those are rare cases. There's not a lot of these, again, you know, probably 90 plus percent of those were done between the uh, transit method and the radial velocity method. Another way that you could do it is through gravitational lensing. So when we look at the star, there's a star here, there's a star here. When its light comes through and comes right, be, and when it's directly behind the planet, the planet will magnify its light. It's what we call a gravitational lens. It's because uh, one of the things that Einstein tells us and is that when light passes near a massive object, it gets bent. So light coming around the star from one side gets bent towards us and the other side gets bent and the, the planet acts like a little lens. And temporarily it'll brighten the star as it passes in front of it and then it will dim down again. So we can use this. The only difficulty is that you can't repeat it. You can't go, hey, this looks interesting. I want to go see it again. Well, with radial velocity measurements, you can keep making them. You can make them for years and years and years. For transits, you can keep observing that and look for variations. In this case, it's once and you're done. You'll see the, you'll see the, the light and then the star has moved on, the planet has moved on. They're unlikely to line up again. So you're not going to have another chance to be able to find that. The advantage, one of the advantages is that you can find any planet. Doesn't matter how far away it is from its star. Doesn't matter um, so how far away or anything else about it. It can be how the orbit is tilted, right? The, the other orbits had to be tilted almost edge on to really be able to see them. Here, this can be tilted however direction it happens to be. And you, as long as it passes in front of a star, you can determine it. So it's, it picks up some types of planets that we wouldn't detect otherwise. All right, and then I mentioned the pulsar timing as just really the way the first planets. Looking at the variations in the pulses of a pulsar was the first way we were able to see planets outside our solar system. So finishing up this section and then we have one more uh, to look at. Again, we found a large number of exoplanets, 3,600 that are now known outside our solar system. So it's not just, you know, ones and twos. Now 3,600 out of hundreds of bil hundred billion stars doesn't sound like a whole lot, but we're just starting. You know, we're just, we're just beginning to detect them. So trying to detect an Earth-like planet is tough. We can do it, it's at the very edge of our detection abilities now. Detecting smaller planets like Mars or Mercury, not really there yet. But we also have some problems detecting other types of planets that I'll look at in the next section. So we're very biased towards what we're able to detect right now and we've already been able to find thousands of them. Remember they had to be tilted exactly at John. So all those ones that are tilted a little bit, the radial velocity method doesn't work as well and the transit method doesn't work at all. So if it's tilted zero degrees, great, we can detect those ones. If they're tilted five degrees, 10 degrees, 15 degrees, 20 degrees, you can imagine a lot more are probably tilted at other angles than exactly at zero. We can't detect those with those two primary methods yet. So we've looked at the early indications. Dusty disks is where those are. But really what we use is the radial velocity and the transit methods are the two big ones 
that we, that we find. So what I want to look at now for the last section here that I want to cover today is what do these other planetary systems look like? I've told you we found a lot of them and how we find them, but what do we actually find? Well, our early thoughts would be that the planetary system should be like ours. We're not anything special. Everything else would probably be something similar to us. How planetary systems form, uh, we'd expect them to have. Our planets all have pretty much circular orbits, so may other, other planetary systems should have circular orbits. We might expect that the planets have their small planets, small rocky planets close to the stars where it's hot, and the large gaseous and icy planets further away where it's cooler. I mean, it makes it makes logical sense that you're not going to have a big icy planet real close to a hot star. How would the ice survive? So, tend to think, you know, our early thoughts would have been that things would have been similar to ours. But we're finding a lot of different things as now we have thousands of planets to be able to study. We can actually study them statistically, which you can't really do with one solar system. And we're finding different types of planets. We find planets that are much larger than Jupiter. So Jupiter, largest planet in our solar system, is dwarfed by some of these other planets. There are planets that are several times Jupiter's size. There are also intermediate sized planets which don't exist in our solar system. And there's a lot of these. These are planets that are much bigger than the Earth, but much smaller than Neptune. So Neptune is several times the size and mass of the Earth. You know, you've got Neptune like that, and you've got the Earth like this. There's a lot of planets that we're finding in between. So that's also something that people will wonder about. You know, these are very common. Why don't we have any in our solar system? Did we just, you know, lose on that one? We didn't happen to get any planets like that? Or are there other processes by which some of these different planets form? One of the most interesting things that we find, other than potentially habitable planets, which has interest for its own, but one that really caused astronomers to change their thoughts was hot Jupiters. These are planets that are Jupiter-like, size, mass, density, so they're very similar to Jupiter, you know, but they orbit really close to their stars. So they're hot Jupiters, so big Jupiter, big gas planet, but it orbits closer to its star than Mercury does to ours. And that's, that's a big question, you know, how does this possibly exist? If we put Jupiter close to our, star, to our sun at that distance, or at Mercury's distance, we'd expect that most of, the, most of the matter would be vaporized off of it just because of the intense heat. So it's really an interesting thing. That's one of the ones, you know, the, the other things are interesting, but these hot Jupiters are one that have really caused us to change some of our thoughts as to how the solar systems form in the first place. Because we see lots of patterns within our solar system. You see, when we look at our solar system, we have Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. They're all rocky planets, all solid planets, made of rocks and metals, and they're close to the star. High temperatures, that should make sense, right? We're not going to have icy material, lots of icy material, at least really close to the star. And we've got those other big planets that are all gas and ice further away. So when we look at them, what we find is more like this. We find all sorts of planets. There are, you know, rocky type planets like we find here. We also find some that are like the other part of our solar system. So we have things in here that are, you know, planets like those that we have in the inner part of our solar system that are rocky. We also have some what we call cold gas giants, but they're a smaller percentage over here, way out. 
at larger distances, but there's also some things that are not present in our solar system. There are some that are so close to their stars that they'd be lava worlds. They'd just be that hot that there'd be rock, but the rock would be mostly molten. You get this in-between region of ocean worlds, ice giants, planets that are, you know, this is the Earth size, goes right kind of through the middle of this yellow blob. Well, this is about four times the size of Jupiter. So you're getting up to these ones that are kind of in between. Right in here are stuff that are in between the Earth-like planets and the outer planets. So there's lots of these. The ones that, again, are the most interesting, I think, are these hot Jupiters. This is the orbital period. This is how big the planet is. So there's Ju these are Jupiter-sized planets, or even bigger. But these have orbital periods, 10 days. Mercury has an orbital period of 88 days. You can think about how close these things have to be to their stars to be whipping around them in 10 days. That's out here. That's 10 days. This one is one day. There are actually planets that have been detected that are Jupiter-sized that are whipping around their planets in less than a day. That's how they've got to be incredibly close to the star. To be moving that fast, they have to be incredibly close to their stars. Now, as an advantage, as a, as a aside here, these are the easiest ones to detect, too. So there may be some things with just what we're detecting. We may be detecting some rarities here, but they seem to stand out because they're so massive that they create big tugs or big eclipses, so they're easy to see. And they're orbiting so fast that we can find them really quickly. If it's orbiting with a period of a day, you only need a few weeks of observations and hey, you can confirm that thing had, that thing is definitely a planet. So there are some uh, things there to really look at. Now if we look at them statistically in another graph here, you know, what types of planets do we find? Well, there's very few, you know, Earth mass is right here. These would be Mars size. That doesn't mean that Mars sized planets are rare means they're hard to detect. Mars is even smaller than the Earth, half the size. So they'd be really hard to detect. We haven't detected many of them yet. I would expect that over the next few decades, you know, these bars will start to rise. We'll find more Earth-like planets. We'll begin to find more Mars or Mercury-like planets. We see lots in between. These are what we call the, uh, these are the Earth-like. These are the super-Earths. Things that are a couple times, two, three times the size of the Earth, a couple times the size of the Earth. These are mini Neptunes, which are you know, half the size of Neptune. Those are the ones, if you look at the bars right now, those are the ones where all the planets that we're finding are. Vast majority of them are in this range. These would be Neptune sized, then we get out to Jupiter sized, and even larger ones that have been able to find. So, the distribution is not what we see in our solar system. In our solar system we have four planets down here and then we have two out about here and two out about here. Now we don't know. Again, when you study one solar system, you study the statistics of one thing, it doesn't mean a whole lot. It was all we had to go by for ancient history up until the last decade or so, which is when these numbers have really shot up. I said we've detected planets for 20 some years, but really detected enough of them has been much longer. So really being able to understand those is something you know, key for what's going on, how planets actually form. And the big thing with that is what we call a selection effect.
This is why I think we've detected a lot of these planets. Well, these two methods, which are where we found most of the planets, radial velocity and transit methods, are really good at detecting big planets, and they're really good at detecting planets that are close to their stars. So it gives us a bias. These are the planets that are easy to detect, so we're going to be more likely to find those. Smaller planets exist, but probably just not detectable yet. We couldn't, right, with our methods that we're using for these, Mars would be very hard to find. Mercury would even be very hard to find. The other problem is that we didn't see lots of Jupiter-like planets. There weren't lots of planets like Jupiter. If you remember that little bar graph, there's very few out there compared to what we're seeing with other planets. That might be, again, a bi- that is a bias. Right now, if, we were an, if there was a distant astronomer on another star looking back at the Earth, trying to detect these planets, well, Jupiter around our Sun would not have been detectable in 20 years. Because it takes 12 years to orbit once. So if you saw an eclipse, you have to wait 12 years for it to come around and eclipse the Sun again. It has to go all the way around its orbit. If you're looking for radial velocity curves, to get one complete curve it takes 12 years. So Jupiter would be barely detectable. Maybe you'd get some hint that Jupiter might be there, but you're going to miss a lot of that. So you'd need decades of data to get Jupiter. Saturn would be even worse. Uranus, Neptune, they'd be completely undetectable by these methods. So there is a bias towards detecting certain types of planets. Those that are close to their stars are much easier to detect. So those hot Jupiters, their counts may not go up as fast as the other ones. They're the ones that are really easy to be able to detect. So a little bit of a bias there in terms of what we're able to, able to find. Uh, Let's see, I'm going to have to, I'm going to go ahead and stop on that one and then we'll pick up on this since we have uh, have time next week to finish up 21 and 22. I wanted to finish it but I'll go back through and pick up here next time so we have time, if you have time to actually work on your lab the rest of the rest of the class. Questions first? Again I'll be doing a little more of this on Tuesday.